0: Welcome to series four of the Confidence Fighter. I'm Mercer and on this podcast I'm here to help you find and grow your inner confidence. But before we get on with this episode I would really appreciate it if you subscribed. Okay without further ado let's get on with this episode. Hello and you're listening to The Confidence Fighter, and today I'm delighted to welcome Lexi Elliott as our special guest on The Confidence Fighter. Lexi, can you tell
1: me a bit about yourself and your story? Uh, okay. Um I grew up in Scotland, um central Scotland, uh fit the Highlands basically, and I went to a state school, and from my state school I was the first person to go to Oxford to study physics. Um and I did uh I did my degree there and then I did a PhD in theoretical physics at Oxford. And then after that I went into the city and worked in the city for about City of London for about uh twenty odd years, um, first at Goldman Sachs and then um at a place called M and G Investments in Fund Management. Um and uh I also was trying to become a writer at the same time. And now I am indeed a writer. Um, I think it's fair to say I was always a writer, but now I'm a published writer. <laughs> I have three books out with the fourth one, um, hopefully coming later this year. And uh, in addition to that, I've always been very, very keen on sport. Uh, swimming was the sport that I did as a teenager and into um, my 20s. And I've also picked up uh, a love of running along the way, so I've done various uh, ultra marathons as well. So that's that's me.
0: Um, from what I understand, you did the cross channel swim. What made you decide to swim the channel, and what did it involve?
1: So my first introduction to channel swimming was actually when I was at Oxford because Oxford and Cambridge every two years race each other across the channel. And that is in a relay format. So you have six swimmers in each team, three men, three women, and each swimmer swims for an hour. and You keep rotating through the swimmers until you basically hit France. And the first time they did that was 1998. I was part of the uh, team in the year 2000. Um, and we actually still hold the record for the fastest mixed team across the channel. We did it in 8 hours 18, which I have to say was uh, not so much thanks to me, but actually thanks to all the very fast swimmers that were in the team. I was definitely the weakest leg of that team. But um, at the time, I thought it was uh, too cold and too far to to do solo. But when I had uh, Cameron, my eldest child, I think I was looking for a challenge that would make me feel like I, like myself again, like the person I was before I had a child. And I thought that I would actually try the channel. And uh, I was right, it is very far and it is very cold. And <laughs> those are really the the main things that you have to get over. Um, so when you are training for it, you, you start training in a pool Um, And that's about, you know, getting your fitness up and and being able to swim for a long period of time. And and part of that is also training your mind because it's a long, long, long time to be in the water and you have to train your mind to cope with that and not be bored by that. And then when the weather starts improving, I I started uh, swimming down in dover harbour a lovely lady called frida streeter used to run the beach for all the aspiring cross channel swimmers and we'd all go down at the weekend and do some swims in there and that's about acclimatizing yourself to the cold because really the the cold is um it's a significant factor you don't swim in a wetsuit you just swim in your normal swimsuit
0: can you tell us a bit more about the cross channel community
1: well Certainly, at the time when I did it, which you have to remember that was 2007, so it was some time ago, um, really it it revolved around the Dover Harbour beach. And what we used to do was go down there, and there's a lovely lady called Frieda Streeter, whose daughter Alison um, had at that point done something like 34 channel swims. So she really knew her stuff and how to train for it. And she would give you instructions about, okay get in and do a swim for three hours today or, or a swim for five hours or whatever it might be and there were volunteers on the beach who would come down and you'd come in every hour or so and get something to drink maybe something to eat if you wanted um, and then you'd go back out for another hour. I mean it's a, it's amazing mentally what it teaches you because you're swimming back and forth between the harbour walls and the whole time you're really looking forward to coming in and having this drink which has got you know some carbohydrate powder in it and and it takes all of about a minute and then you're back out again but somehow that just keeps you going something to look forward to um but the the, the community is really strong and and very powerful and very supportive they love it for anyone to get across there's an awful lot of support for you um while you're swimming your channel which while you're doing your swim you're not aware of it necessarily but um there are people following you and and willing you on and yeah I think all the people I met there there's some just wonderful individuals and one of the things I really liked about it is it's Absolutely, all walks of life. There are people who do all sorts of different jobs, all sorts of different ages, all sorts of different backgrounds. It's it's a really lovely experience.
0: Can you tell us a bit about the swim itself and what was the hardest bit?
1: So the swim itself, I started at um, two in the morning, and I have to tell you, it's very strange to eat porridge at you know eleven o'clock at night and put on sunscreen. Because you've got to have sunscreen on, otherwise you're going to get burnt while you're swimming. So, yeah, we started at two o'clock in the morning from a place called Shakespeare Beach. Um, By the time we got to the beach, because you had to go on the boat to get out of the, the marina and then round to the beach. By the time we got there, I think I'd thrown up twice, which was probably nerves more than it was the sea. I mean, it was quite choppy that day, but I have to say, I think it was really nerves. And then at two o'clock in the morning, so dark, I had to jump in off the side, swim to the beach, and then wave a bit and get in and swim. And now every swimmer has a boat alongside them for safety. And on that boat is your boat captain, obviously, and whatever support the boat captain needs and also um, whatever support you want. So I had my husband and my parents on the boat and I was swimming with a a light stick in my goggle strap and a light stick pinned to um, my back so that they could see, not just see me with the light, but they could also see what direction I was going. If I was suddenly going to veer off, they were able to, you know, be aware of that and take take any steps necessary. But essentially you swim, you know, uh, uh, between one and five metres off the side of the boat and the boat sets the direction. Um, So I had to swim through through the night and into into the morning and um, it it, every half an hour or so you you have a, a drink which has carbohydrate powder in it. You might occasionally have something like hot chocolate. You might have something to eat if you want to. But the the hardest bit was really the very end. So the last um, mile into shore is known as the graveyard of champions uh, because so many people fail at that point. The bottom of the sea is it's a very um, difficult shape for currents, uh, and and often you find that the tide turns and you're being pushed out, which was exactly what happened for me. And and by that point you're exhausted, you're very cold. I was actually getting ill, although I didn't know it, but I had. Palmer edema and I was coughing and coughing blood and I didn't I didn't know at the time but uh, um, that was the point where I just kept putting my head up and going to the team am I am I making any progress and eventually the boat captain's assistant said just put your head down shut up and swim which I think in retrospect was absolutely the best piece of advice because I thought Yes, that's a fair point. If I'm talking to you, I'm not swimming and I'm not making progress. And yes, OK, fine, I'll get on with that. So I put my head down and swam. And um, and eventually, suddenly, I was, you know, actually, I could see people on the beach, not just blobs. And then suddenly, you could see the detail of those people. And then suddenly, I was actually coming onto the beach. It was amazing.
0: How long was the whole swim in total? Uh, Twelve and a half hours. What do you wish you know now that you would have liked to know then?
1: I don't think there is anything that really would have helped because it's just something that you've got to get through. It's very mental. It's very internal at stages. I I liken it on occasion to... Um, when i was pregnant when i became really fascinated with everybody else's birthing stories despite the fact that they have no bearing on whatever birth experience you're going to have um i it was as if somehow that knowledge was going to help me and it you know i don't actually think it necessarily did and um and it was the same you'd get very fascinated with other people's channel swim uh, but actually you have to do it and your experience will be a unique experience and you just have to crack on. I, I suppose I would say the, the one really useful thing I did gain from hearing about other people's swims was, was I had heard about a woman who had pulmonary edema and had to go to hospital afterwards. And so when I when we got back to Britain um to, to Dover Harbour and I was really struggling um to to climb the ramp up the marina and still coughing up what what essentially was blood I realized that this might be what was happening to me and I ought to go to the hospital and I was absolutely absolutely fine um essentially it started clearing itself as soon as I got out of the water but they had to keep me in to make sure that some of the stuff that got into my lungs wasn't nasty and going to give me some dreadful case of pneumonia but it meant that my post-channel swim recovery was in a hospital with a saline drip and um, an oxygen mask and tons of antibiotics being pumped into me. So it was probably the best post-channel recovery that anybody could possibly have.
0: Can you tell us a bit about your degree and your PhD?
1: So when I uh, was deciding what degree to do, uh, I was thinking of doing either English or math or physics. And uh, I decided not to do English because I felt that my interest in English could be uh, something I followed in my own time, you know, with, with my own reading, whereas I felt it was very difficult to do that with either physics or math. And then I always find the physics just a little bit more interesting, you know, applying the maths to real tangible problems within the world. And so That's why I went for the physics. Um, And when I was uh, at university, I discovered very quickly that I absolutely hated practicals. So with a passion, with a vengeance, I would have a headache coming on the minute I had to even think about having a practical session that day. So there was an option to um, do a theoretical physics paper instead of some of the practicals so I absolutely took that option and ran with it and did as much of uh, the the theoretical physics physics modules that I could do to get out of the practicals and ultimately um, when I was thinking that I would like to do a PhD. It was very obvious to me that that would be a theoretical physics PhD rather than, you know, an experimental physics PhD. And the difference between the two is is pretty much what it sounds like. You know, the experimental physicists will actually be doing experiments with interesting machines and so on, whereas the theoretical physicists are are more pen and paper or computer and and kind of working their way through the maths it's a more mathematical end of physics I suppose I would say.
0: Why did you choose to do a PhD?
1: Yeah that's actually quite a interesting question and when I look back on it I think the reasons are twofold. One is you you have to remember I came from a environment where um the people around weren't doing lots of jobs like uh accountant or managing consultant or investment banker I didn't know what most of those things were I'd never grown up with anybody who had a parent who was doing that you know the parents that I knew were teachers or firefighters or policemen or you know plumbers or mechanics you know it wasn't the kind of uh quite so highly educated background that I grew up in and I didn't really understand most of the jobs that my friends were going for when I was doing my first degree and I had a four-year first degree and a lot of my friends had a three-year first degree so they were applying for jobs a year early and I just didn't really feel that I understood that landscape or or what that world was going to be and I suppose that left me feeling a little scared of it all. And then in addition, I I did really enjoy my subject and I was good at it. You know, I was on, on, I expected to get a first and I did get a first and I thought, well, I can take this a bit further. But I think I pretty quickly realised whilst I was doing my PhD that I didn't want to stay in academia forever. Um, by that point, I suppose I'd gotten a better understanding of what the, the broader uh, outside world outside of academia was and I my friends had gone into these jobs and now I was starting to understand what they were and what might be available to me once I left university but I did feel that the PhD was really worthwhile and it gave me a real um, step up the ladder I suppose for getting into a, a really good job in the city of London. What
0: career were you expecting it to take you into, and what career did you choose? Well,
1: as I say, when I started the PhD, um, I wasn't terribly sure. Even when I started it, I don't think I thought I would stay in academia, Um, and so I I thought I would probably um, end up in in a very analytic job in an investment bank or or an accountancy firm. And um, I I did ultimately end up in an investment bank, but not the super analytic end of it in the sense that I was, I ended up being the most analytic person on a front office um, role. So I was on a trading floor and I was meeting um, customers and clients, I wasn't stuck in a back room doing some really fancy algorithmic trading or anything. Um, and I liked that, that aspect of things where you, where I was mixing, um, learning about the business as a whole and learning about customer service, if you like. Um, and I was adding it like another string to my bow, I suppose, because I felt like I already had um, a very good analytic grounding. <laughs>
0: Can you tell us a bit more about your books and what motivated you to write them?
1: Well, I always wanted to write. If you would asked me when I was a child, I would say, oh, yes, I'd love to be an author. But I was also quite practical. I, you know, really wanted to pay the bills and have somewhere to live and be able to eat. And, you know, the career prospects for for aspiring writers aren't great. Um, most writers don't really make enough to live on at all. And I didn't really want to be a journalist, which is the way you do it where you you, you manage to write whilst actually uh, you know, having enough to, to live on. Um, so it was something that I was doing in my spare time. Um, and I, I always wrote, for as long as I can remember, I've always been scribbling away in, in any spare time I had. And, um, when I, um, was made redundant during the global financial crisis, uh, I was, you know, unexpectedly suddenly at home with time on my hands. And I just recently won a short story competition. And I think that gave me the confidence to think, okay, well, let's, let's dive into a big project, like a novel. And I'd had an idea kicking around in my head for a long time um which was ultimately the became the french girl and that uh that was the novel that i wrote um and that got classified as a psychological thriller by my um by my publishing house cuz publishing houses like to put you into a genre and then they want you to reproduce books in that genre um so I continued to write psychological thrillers so as I say now I am working on my fourth. I understand
0: that your late mother suffered from Alzheimer's we've never had a guest talk about that before and we'd love to hear a bit about your journey and um any wisdom that you could share.
1: Sure yeah that's right so my mum died um August of the year before last um, with Alzheimer's and uh, my mum was my mom was wonderful she was incredibly vibrant um, very active uh, she was highly educated she was a um, teacher fellow at Stirling University um, she loved to swim she did triathlons she didn't she didn't drink she didn't smoke she didn't take any of the boxes um where you know you might think somebody was more susceptible she absolutely didn't take any any boxes um but you know this very very bright vibrant woman was um was withering in in front of us I suppose I would say she became very withdrawn um and really by the end wouldn't hold a conversation at all um might say yes or no if she was being offered food and it it became very difficult um i suppose one of the lovely things is that my eldest child remembers her as she was and remembers playing football with her and how she would come swimming and just really get stuck into anything um My youngest child probably doesn't remember her in quite the same way, but loves to hear the stories. And I think the stories are important. My wisdom would be to, to talk about the person and to, um, to make sure that uh, everybody remembers who she was before she became ill. And it's such a long journey once, um, or at least it was for us once she, once she became ill and we, knew what the end point was going to be because my mum's mum had also um, had Alzheimer's and so it it is very difficult when that person is there in front of you but really isn't that the person that you want or or remember and I spoke to a doctor once and and I was speaking about the fact that you know you can for example, you play music that she remembered from the 60s and she would clap along and she would get very animated with it because that, is, that was the sort of music that she'd loved and grown up with, music of her teenage years. And um, And I was almost wondering what the point of it was when she couldn't remember it. And the doctor made a very valid point, which was that the experience of that would be releasing happy chemicals, you know, endorphins, et cetera, through her body. It was physically good for her, regardless of whether or not she remembered it. And that stuck with me. So I, I thought, oh, yes, it's really important to go and do these stimulating things, even if you know that in an hour's time there will be absolutely no memory, possibly even in three minutes' time, there'll be no memory. Um, but it's it's really important to try and keep the person active and keep them stimulated and and put them in a a good environment and i i guess by the time she she died um it it was a point at which i wouldn't say we were um i wouldn't say we were expecting it but you're always kind of you know that that's where you're heading it it was still kind of a shock but but when we when we had the funeral and, and uh despite it being covid we were able to have a funeral and we were able to have people together and i found a real release and i suppose a sense of comfort in actually being able to then turn our attention to remembering more who she was and and that was really lovely and also all those people there who a lot of whom I hadn't seen for a long time and remembering that, you know, there's this whole community of people that I could turn to if I needed help, that, um, you know, they, they love my mum so much if I if I needed anything, they would not hesitate to help. And that's, that's a really nice thing to think about.
0: Finally, do you have a favourite inspirational quote or piece of advice to finish on? I suppose
1: uh, one that... Um, is actually more my husband's, uh, which is if you're if you're going to do something, do it with good grace. Um, so uh, try not to drag my heels and just get stuck into whatever I'm doing and, and, and smile. And I always remind the kids that people will they'll forget what you said and they'll forget what you did, but they will never forget how you made them feel. So I think it's really important to think about. Um, in your interactions with other people how you are how you are making them feel and if you can leave people with a smile and a laugh or a joke or uh, anything that just adds to their day that's that's really important so those those would be the two things i would say Thank you so much for talking to me today You are really welcome Myrtle. it's been really fun thank you for having me
0: Thank you so much for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of The Confidence Fighter and you're using Apple Podcasts, I would really appreciate a rating and review because this means other young girls can find this podcast more easily. Don't forget to subscribe. See you next time.